Well, hello and a welcome to the latest instalment of Boycott's Corridor of Certainty podcast, brought to you by Gospel. I'm Charles Dagnall and Sir Jeffrey Boycott. I've missed you. Two weeks it's been. Well, there haven't been a lot of cricket going on, <laughs> to be honest. I mean, once England finished, I mean, it's been um, India and New Zealand. Then we've had Australia, South Africa in the one dayers. And then the ladies in Australia, they've been, uh, been more publicity about them than the men. Well, it's been, it's been, you know, over the course of the last couple of weeks, there has been numerous things. We're going to get to lots of subjects uh, today because there is one overriding one, and that is the worry about the coronavirus and, and how it affects sport and how it may affect also cricket uh, forthcoming because we are only one month away from the county season starting. I have to say, Jeffrey, I mowed my lawn the other day and just the smell of it just started feeling like cricket season was on its way. So that was that's that just is a little bit of an excitement. Let's start in New Zealand then, uh, Jeffrey. Um, overall, in the Test Series, New Zealand won the first Test by 10 wickets. They won the second by seven wickets. Is this a, a jaded India side? Were the conditions subject? I mean, obviously, home conditions for New Zealand. They prepared the, the pitches as they wanted them to. But India really uh, had had really nothing to offer in the Test Match Series. I thought they played poorly, really. The Indian technique was found out. They're used to playing at home on slower, nicer pitches to bat on until it turns later on. But early on, they're nice, they're friendly. They don't bounce too high. They don't seem too much. And they just played poor technique, playing hard at the ball, way in front of the pad, not letting the ball come to them, hardly ever soft and relaxed hands. And they do what all the modern players are doing today. As soon as they get a bouncer or two, everybody has a dart at it. Um... The inference there is because of 2020 and 50 over cricket, you can't let balls go. You have to try and score. But in test match cricket, it's a lot of getting out shot. And they all have a dart at it. And even when the, the bowlers put two men back, they were still having a dart at it and getting out. And it's changed the course of technique it has. These wonderful big bats that hit the ball further and harder and faster and flatter, better pitches and techniques yeah, somewhere disappearing. And they didn't give themselves enough practice to adapt to it. Yeah. And they were pretty poor, really. I mean, everybody's got sucked in for years now of having helmets and visors, even tailenders. They have a dart at everything, don't they? And nobody really gets severely injured. Quite rarely, put it that way. I know the lad in Australia, but rarely. The helmet saves you. It ring-a-ding-dings around in your head when the ball hits a helmet. But actually, after the first surprise, a little bit of shock of it, you take the helmet off. The helmet sometimes is dented a bit, but really, you're fine. It's, it's very rare for somebody to get injured. You know, I'm thinking about before my time and before, no helmets. You had to be very selective about hooking. You had to watch the ball, duck, weave, be careful about hooking and there was a great skill in that now which just everybody flails at it and they were the same were India I mean I think of say 1948 at Old Trafford Dennis Compton came in at number four England two early wickets down I think he Washbrook and uh, was it George Emmett from Gloucester and he got sweeted by Limwall who was quick and skiddy he had to go off I'd got many runs bandaged up stitched up come back, he made 145 not out. And that was the difference. If you got it wrong, you got hurt. He was lucky he got hurt, but not seriously. I mean, 
I was fascinated by Len Hutton because he was a Yorkshire and England opener and I was a young kid coming along. And when I got to talk to him, I think it was about 1966 at the Oval came and Wes Hall and Charlie Griffiths were bowling. Wes was still quite quick, getting towards the end. And I said, uh, so Leonard, did you hook or, or, or did you duck? What did you do? Did you? Limwall, Miller, they were pretty good apparently. He said, ah, that Limwall were pretty quick, you know. I said, yeah. I said, did, did you hook at him? Now? He said, he bowled me a quick bouncer here at the Oval once. He said, and I went to hook it. And I got halfway through the shot and I stopped. Out of the corner of my eye, I could see the hospital. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, that's, that's the difference. And here what India did, they had a bit of, bit of grass on the pitches, a cushion. The ball sort of made dints or little cups on the surface. And there was a bit of lateral movement. That's tough when you're batting against a new ball mm -hmm. any time in any era. And then there was bounce. Now, that's a handful too. But when you get bounce and lateral movement, then you've got a real problem. And that's when you have to have really good technique. And quite honestly, they get sucked into playing on these flat things in India with big bats and smacking it everywhere. And they looked pretty poor, to be honest. Especially when you have two practitioners uh, of the standard of Tim Southey and Trent Bolt. They know the conditions. They're perfect for those conditions, and they're high-class um, seam bowlers and swing bowlers. They're very good bowlers. They had Tim Southey who was back bowling well again. He yeah, it. Remember that's good to see. Remember he first played England and got yeah. five wickets? He seams it, swings it out, bowled well. Then they got Wagner back for the second test, not the first. He's, he's a bit more of an enforcer, bangs it in. He makes them jump around a bit, and then you get Bolt, as you say, and Southey pitching it up. But the, the real start of the show, you know, was a new kid. It wasn't... Although they did debut, the real star was a guy called Kyle Jameson. Yeah. 25 years old, very tall, maybe 6'5", something like that. Not that quick. I wouldn't have thought he was, you know, he wasn't. But when you get the ball high up like an Ambrose and it bounces more, and it always seems and is more difficult when there's lateral movement and high bounce. And it caused a lot of problems for him, a great deal of problems. And there's just one other thing. The people who start podcasts are all cricket nuts. They'll know all about the game as much as me. The first test match in Wellington, yeah. the whole game, a total of 251.1 overs. <laughs> the next one was a total of 218.1 overs. I think I know where you're going, eh? Yeah. When people are old-fashioned and die-hard and say, we must stick to five-day test matches. What is the bloody point when we can't even last three days? And this is not just an isolated two-test match series. There's a lot of test matches not going four days, never mind five. They want to open their, open their eyes and open their ears. And it's not about days, it's about overs. And the overrate is getting so slow... So bad, we know about that. I'm not going to go on too much. But you can get 250 overs by bowling slow over it and still get into most of the third day. Yeah. That's ludicrous. It ought to be finished in two days and a bit, didn't it? Ought to be all over and done with it. That's the best you can do. 218 overs and they're into the third day. I mean, in the old days, when they were bowling 18, 20 overs an hour, it wouldn't even last two days, that. Obviously, overrates we've, we've, we've we covered in the last, um, uh, in fact, two podcasts ago. But 
on the subject of four-day test match cricket, is that is that something? I, I'm 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 a little bit on the fence when it comes to. I, I I don't see any problem with keeping it as five days, but nor do I see a problem with actually trying some four-day test match cricket. It's and not four or five was, days. But, I'll stop you there. It's not four or well, five days. Three days. It's not moment, three but, days. It's about getting the overrate up. And then let's see where it goes. It's now down to 13 and a half. When I played, it was 17s. Before me, it was 20s. And, and it's just coming down and down and down. We're actually denying the public a better entertainment in a day's cricket. Where does that come from? Does that come from the ICC? Does that come from... Yes. Yeah. Poor administration. Poor administration who don't force it on the players. All you have to say, if you don't bowl so many overs a day... It's going to be a fine of 10 runs and over. And I don't care about you swapping your helmet. I don't care that you're taking your boot off. And I don't care about you this and that and all these things and moving the side screen. All those things were done throughout history. They're not new, you know. They mm. were done when Truman played and stayed and when Larwood played and when Limwallen played. Go back to right to the day one. The, you know, all these things have gone on for time immemorial. And we're just not moving ahead. And we could do with a bit more leadership from the ICC. I also wonder, and look, you, you're preaching to the converted here because I'm, I'm a massive overrate, uh, you know, advocate in the fact that it needs to speed up. Well, I played in the uh, in the county scene when it was 16 overs an hour, and that was that yeah. was perfectly adequate, and and managed to get 104 overs in the day, and it was it was very rarely extended, and uh, you know, people just got on with it. There was not. Yep, it's the amount did. of meetings. It's the amount. Every, as soon as. As soon as a, a bowler is ready to start his over, then there has to be a meeting of three or four people just to decide on where backward point should be. It's, uh, you know, these things, as you mentioned, are not new. It seems to be more regular, but there seem to be also a little bit more drawn out. So I, I totally um, agree with you on that. What about on-field umpires? I mean, they seem reticent to actually galvanise the players into into getting a move on as well. Well, I mean, a little bit. There's I'm no sure deterrent. Come from what that. you have, you need a deterrent. If an umpire says to a bowler or a captain, "Listen, captain, you got to get a move on. Listen, young man bowling, you got to get a move on," um, and he doesn't, and the captain takes no notice. What does he have in the rules? To challenge them with. He has nothing. He has no deterrent whatsoever. The only and that's thing where, is the captain, isn't it? The, the, the captain's uh, possible the, suspension. The ICC have got to give them something and deal with it. But look, I just it's just sad, that's all. Yeah. And when cricket's up against so many other things in the world, I mean, we can't exactly say that attendances are going up. <laughs> when cricket clubs are going out of business, you know, and, and school's finishing third week of July and cricket is finished then, at school, because it's soccer when they come back. I mean, it's a challenge, isn't it, to keep yep. cricket alive in schools, in clubs, and to keep people coming to matches, not not just the big ones, England, Australia, but all matches. You know, county cricket, look at that, it's struggling for people. And we should be looking at ways to make it more appealing and appetising for people to come and watch. That's all. That's all I've got to say. Yep, sometimes it does shoot itself in the foot. What about Australia, South Africa? Yeah, what was quite pleasing when Australia got the better of South Africa in the test matches is how South Africa, from the start really, it started with the captain, Faf Duplessis, a very good player, deciding, okay, 
is going to relinquish the captaincy. And the wicketkeeper took it over, Quinton de Kock. And then they followed on from that, the South African selectors with the, the new players, Smithy at the head of it, Graham Smith, picking youngsters, young kids who, unless you were really in the game and the know, you think, who the hell's he? You know, they had Pieter Milan. Mm. And you go, oh, I don't know about him. And I'm in the game. I go to South Africa a lot. He made 129 not out in the second one ODI. And then there was a guy called Smuts. Yeah, I remember Smuts. That's in the history <laughs> of South Africa. But I don't know if he's any relation. He made an 84 in the third ODI. And there was Klaassen, Heinrich Klaassen. Where did he come from? And he made 123 not out in the first ODI. Then 68 not out in the last. So, so I'm mentioning that because there were guys with new names and they made contributions. And the guy who probably captured the imagination of the South African people was Lungi Nagidi. Have I got him right? A very Ngidi, tall yeah. bowler, bowling seamers and off cutters, and seemed to have a very strong mind at the death slowed it down, wasn't afraid to try the Yorker, slow the odd ball down. He got a number of wickets. and He got he, six for in the second, didn't he? He put the kibosh on at the end where you're looking to get really big overs, aren't you? He stopped him doing that, and I I enjoyed watching it because I've always thought, look, if you get in trouble, don't always go back to old experience. Go to young players. I've always believed that youth comes into a situation with energy. It has no fear unless someone puts it in its head. And that's how they came in. It almost freshened up the team from the test matches and they threw themselves around in the field and, and they just started to express themselves. And I'm really pleased for them and they played well, deserved to win. I mean, Australia are no mugs. They're a pretty good bowling attack. They played very well, did these young South Africans. You, obviously, you do have your finger on the pulse, especially when it comes to South Africa. You mentioned you go there a lot, and they have, you know, they've not had the best time of it against England. Uh, then to finish off their summer with performances like that, with that fresh blood coming in, you know, finally, uh, when, you know, the Graham Smith's involved, Mark Boucher's involved, Jack Callis yes, yeah. is involved. Mm. And, and not only is it a fresh take on players, but it's a fresh outlook behind the scenes as well. And do you see a, I'm not saying they're going to turn into world beaters this time, but but just a slight change in, in, their, in their cricket and where they potentially could go? They have a big change in energy. That's the first thing. You want that. I also remember Brian Clough, my great friend. He was giving a chat in the dressing room and he said something to this player. And he said, I, I, I'm trying, manager, I'm trying. He said, hey, lad, I paid it to try. I'm now trying to get some ability out of it. <laughs> <laughs> so the first thing you want is that energy and that 100% effort. Come on, I want to see that. I, that I, I take that for granted. That's what I should get anyhow. Then we can try to move you forward, make you a better player, which means it helps the team become a better team. But I need all of you pulling that way with energy. I want you to want to play. I want you to dive and run and chase and get into it. And that's what I saw from them. If you've gone to India now, they've gone straight to India to play uh, some white ball cricket against India. So not a lot of practice. I think they play this weekend. Uh, but it's like we've got youngsters going to Sri Lanka, England. And I don't look at it and expect youngsters to, 
go from out of the environment they used to and suddenly become will be will beaters. Yeah. It doesn't happen like that. What I look for is seeing if you can adapt a bit. Show me a bit of something. I don't expect you, if you get four or five innings, I don't expect you to do well every innings, but show me a couple of innings. Show me something and move forward. And, and it's like two steps forward, one step back. Two steps forward, one step back. And if you're doing that, you're not going backwards, you're actually going forward, aren't you? Absolutely. It's, but it's not There's a straight line. There's nothing better. There's nothing Very few better. kids can go upwards all the time, getting better and better every year, and blowing everybody's minds by fantastic points. It doesn't work like that. It's slightly up and down, but as long as you're going forward and keep showing that you're learning something, you're adapting, you're getting a bit better, that's what England have to do in Sri Lanka. They've got some young kids. It's great and it's exciting watching them develop and seeing how they handle different situations. And and just as, as a spectator and an onlooker or a commentator, it, it, it matters not. But just to see uh, how they adapt to it and 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 you know what they can come up with is is always exciting and it's always energizing. And let's hope actually for for South Africa's sake that they um uh, they can turn a little bit of a corner. By the way, that Yanaman Milan is going to be playing uh, in England. He he had a first ball duck in his in his debut, but then he. Followed it up with that big century, and he's at Leicestershire uh, this year. Uh, so again, I can nip down the road to Grace Road and have a look at him and see uh, uh, and see what he's got to offer the Foxes. So it'll be nice to see him uh, in county cricket. Um, so good news for South Africa. Um, like just quickly, England ne- this time next week. We're recording this on a Thursday, yeah. so England next week start their Test series against Sri Lanka. Um, since we last spoke, Mark Wood has had to pull out of the tour. He joins Jofra Archer uh, as not being part of um, uh, the England tour concerns. Jeffrey, big concerns. Uh, look, Mark Wood's got a side injury. He gets too many injuries. It's hard to make plans for him in the team, because you never know when he's going to be fit. I mean, the last podcast we had, you were saying, Charles, you know, England in November, T20 in Australia, they've got Mark Wood, and I was going, hmm, have they? (laughs) You know, you're never sure whether he's going to be fit or not, are you? I don't have confidence that he is. I do believe, and it's a sad fact, there are some people who are unlucky, Genuinely, I think too many people, you know, make a bad shot and get out or bowl rubbish and say, oh, I was unlucky when they weren't. They just played rubbish. Mm. I think but there are some people who are genuinely unlucky. He's got an attitude where he wants to bowl. He seems to want to give 100% all the time. It's a fantastic attitude. An ability, a skill to be able to bowl fast, genuinely fast, which is wonderful. And he hasn't got a God-given body that's going to stand up to the rigours of fast bowling. It's a shame, real big shame. And it's happened through history that, you know, it's, it's not totally new. I mean, look at Shane Bond of uh, New Zealand. Yeah, that's a great Now, he were quick. Yeah. 18 tests he played in eight years. Eight years. Great to seven wickets at a good record. But And then another one in New Zealand. Look at that Lockie Ferguson who bowled fast in the World Cup last yeah, year in England. Right. Yeah, Played one test, he's out, can't play, he's got some calf muscle that's not healing. And he can go to England if you want. One of the greatest of all time, Frank Typhoon Tyson. 17 test matches, 76 wickets at 18.6. Wow. 
And even in first class, you know, if you look it up, he only got 767 first class matches in his career. And I remember the great Richie Benno, and I say that honestly, only a great cricketer, a great commentator, great man. I said to him, having faced many fast bowlers, me in my career, I said, Richie, who's the fastest bowler you ever played against or saw? He came back straight away, Frank Dyson. I said, really? Blimwall, Miller, Truman, all the West Indies quicks? Dyson. I said, what did he do with the ball? He said he didn't have to do anything. <laughs> Just pace. I said, really? Was he that quick? He said, yes. And that's that's some compliment, isn't it? Oh. He was a fine player, Richie. He, does, he said, has an economy of words, Richie. And he just said, Tyson. It's, Not even thought about it's, it. Yeah, especially when the answer came out like a, a, a bullet from a gun, you know, when, yeah. when, when he see, responds Bill in Shankly, that way. Bill Shankly, Brian Clough, my friend here, Bill Shankly said, Used to say to a player, when he said, are you fit? Uh, well, um, you're no used to me till you're fit, lad. <laughs> and Cluffy was the same. I mean, that's why they didn't understand it at Leeds. He said, until you were fit, you were no use to the team and you're no use to yourself. And, and at Leeds, they got upset when he told Eddie Gray, I see Eddie at York Races. What a wonderful footballer he was. But he was unlucky. He had quite a lot of injuries, didn't he? And... Brian said, listen, young man, if you were a racehorse, we'd have shot you long ago. <laughs> You're costing us too much money. You need to get on the park. I mean, it's as nasty as it sounds, but the fact is, we actually, us sportsmen, are no use to ourselves, and we're no use to any team we play for unless we can get on the park. There will be no one. There will be no one, Jeffrey, who will be more frustrated than the players who are not involved. Yeah, in but it, it, frustration and doesn't help. It's like apologising. After you, you know, you can apologize. We all do. We make mistakes, me included. I apologize. If we keep making the same mistake, though, sorry, the, the apology wears thin, doesn't it? It's going to be. If you keep getting injured and can't play, I can't plan my strategy for the T20 in Australia, for yeah. the World Cup comes afterwards. I can't be planning it when we still don't know if Joffrey Archer is going to be like that. Is he going to be injury prone? With all that talent and all that pace, is he going to. You know, not be able to play, and then he might. You might get two or three games out of him. Then you miss him for a few months. I hope not. Cross our fingers, because when you get anybody like Wood and Joffrey Archer who can bowl fast, I say again what I said before: they are aces for any team. But that's the thing: you can't tell when Mark's ever going to be fit. This is the thing that's going to be a really interesting facet of the summer that's to come with the series, the test match series against the West Indies, then the one day internationals and T20s Australia, then it's Pakistan. And then there's some more uh, white ball cricket at the end of that. Then you're going on to, to the world T20 in Australia. I'll be intrigued. I don't know what they're going to do. I'm sure you don't either, but I will be intrigued to see how they take care of their fast bowlers. If they're, if their plans are for them to be at their or to be fit for the world competition and sort of save them a little bit, rotate them as you mentioned um, yep, in the first podcast, and, and it will be an, it'll just be very interesting to see how they get taken care of. Um, that test match series starts next Thursday. Uh, two tests against Sri Lanka. 
Uh, batsmen have had just a couple of warm-up games. Uh, a century for Zach Crawley. Joe Roots, uh, currently, as I speak, is 90-not out. Ollie Poke has uh, had a few uh, innings as well and got a little bit of time under their belt. So it'll be interesting to see how it goes. Looking forward to that series. They should win. They, they, beat they them should do. What, I have to say, I don't ago, they know. I, I don't know a huge amount about this Sri Lankan team. I have to admit, um, you know, one or two of the bowlers I know, a couple of the batsmen, but they're in the main, they're a little bit of a mystery to me. Well, they won't be after we've beaten them twice. <laughs> we can make a, make a judgment therein. The only other cricket um, we'll uh, we'll quickly touch upon: uh, the women's World T Twenty ended. Mm. Australia are champions. They retained uh, the title that they uh, won over in the West Indies a couple of years ago. Eighty-seven thousand people uh, at the MCG for the final. They they had a little social media hashtag uh, saying "fill the MCG." That was from a couple of. Um, months out that is pretty Charles, much they came they to did. listen to my favorite Katy Perry they did they did they came they <laughs> they came to watch uh, their home side Australia in the final which they managed to get to um albeit with a little bit of uh, weather around uh, but it was Australia who beat India in the final in front of 87,000. And to watch the Australian team actually celebrating and dancing on stage with Katy Perry at the end it was it was absolutely brilliant um just one thing I want to mention, I wonder if it's going to make any difference to the men's tournament in the, uh, in the, in the autumn, was that England were denied an opportunity to try and reach the final. Now, some would say, well, no, they weren't because they didn't finish top of their group, but their semi-final was abandoned uh, due to the weather in Sydney, and it was, there was no reserve day whatsoever to me Jeffrey that seems a little bit for an for for an ICC tournament that seems a little bit tin pot that you can't it's, have a semi-final no. or an opportunity to reach the final well it's not good for the game really you, you want you want cricket to be played you want sport to be played and I think a reserve day would have been more sensible once the rules are made yeah of course. then you mustn't say anything and appear as if you've got sour grapes because you lost and and that was good i don't think england said too much they just had to accept it that's good they did um, but so that's fine but yeah they're poor rules of those yeah i just wonder if because of that they'll change it for the summer well they need the to but i mean somebody should have worked that out before oh, i was there in the world cup of 92 mm. in the crazy situation of the rain rule then when South Africa <laughs> were probably beating England, yeah. weren't they? They were slightly ahead and then shower of rain and they went back and they had to get 23 runs in one ball. It was 22 in seven. Well I, I, done, remember the big, I remember the big screen. <laughs> Can you remember? The 22 in seven. And then all the South African players were, were looking up at the big screen and then it went, oh no, it's 22 in one. <laughs> yeah. And it was, you could, if you see the pictures of every, anybody who's got YouTube or anything, all these tricky looks, go and watch it. You see the kind of puzzlement and disbelief <laughs> on these South African players. Well, they were not the only ones because we're in the commentary boxes going, really, is that right? <laughs> I mean, who dreamt that up, you go? I mean, it was ludicrous. And, and, well, they had to change that in the end. I mean, unfortunately, you get some cock-ups in life as yeah, well as sports, and then somebody at least tries to make sure it doesn't happen again. Very much. But it was a sad end to 
you know, women's cricket has come on leaps and bounds ever since there's been more money in the game. And so the cricket authorities who run all cricket, not just women's or just men's, everything, have been able to put more money because they've had more money. For a, while, for a while now, they've been able to put more money into women's cricket, haven't they? Yeah. And they've been able to help some of the girls become professional because it was difficult to practice and play and get better when you've got a nine-to-five job as well and trying to earn a living. And it's moved the game forward leaps and bounds. And, uh, yeah, I watched I watched it a bit. Do you know what? I, there was numerous brilliant things about the T20 World Cup that, that's just, you know, seeing Thailand get uh, qualification and, and seeing them and their joy of uh, of getting to that top level. And as you say, the money, um, I, I personally still think there needs to be more investment. And I think the ICC need to help those boards that are, um, uh, are, are, are not as rich as the Australians, England's and India's. Uh, but that that is... is we'll, Charles, we'll bore Charles, out come on. Try getting more money out of the boards. <laughs> <laughs> Um, hey, listen, can I not India, try? <laughs> well, India are the richest board in the world. And even my friend, Sarav Gangul, has taken over now the ICC as president. And they still want more money for the next World Cups. <laughs> and they get more money than anybody. Uh, but true. they still want more. True. Well, it was... Like- Avaricious all the time. Avaricious. Yeah. So... Well, well, we shall wait and see. But look, it was a great tournament, and uh, and congratulations to Australia uh, for winning that one. Let's move and on. Listen, listen. And the best thing I've done in the last fortnight. Go on. I've learned to make espresso martinis. Oh, hang on a second. Hang on a second. Mm. Wait, 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 Jeffrey, wait, no. wait. Just hold your horses now. You've gone from yeah. loading a dishwasher to making your, uh, making dinner to doing the bins, and you've got you've mm. missed about twenty five layers of stuff <laughs> that you've got to learn before getting to making what is it? An espresso uh, well, martini. Right, go on. Give us, come sp- on, hit me. Hot water on espresso coffee. Right. And you pop it in the fridge, let it cool down, stir it, give it a stir first, pop it in the fridge. Then when I'm ready for it, about half past five or two, if I'm lucky, (laughs) I have a measure of vodka, (laughs) a measure of Kahlua, yeah? Yeah. And then some ice cubes in it, shake it all up with the shaker, with the froth and everything. It's like magic. Beautiful. My daughter got me into that in Manchester. I love them. She got me, got it? first got me into doing into it in Sun City, actually. Right. Yeah, when we were in Sun City about a year and a half ago. So and an espresso martini. So one, one but I've shot just learned vodka, how to make them. That's the key. One shot vodka. One shot Kahlua. Please tell me that you drink it out of one of those triangular glasses with that the stem. No, like a champ- champagne glass. Oh, like a, like a flute sort of I thing. I gollop it down and have a second. <laughs> <laughs> All I'm saying is that on on the on the list of items for for you to grow yourself as a person, even at, at you know from where you are now, I think you've missed around about twenty to twenty five things that you might want to get in. But it's a good skill to have, especially when entertaining, because you can then turn around and say, oh, "Do you want an espresso martini?" And people go, "Ah, oh, yes, oh, Jeffrey Boycott, you, you've you got have skills." Cold. You've got to have it cold, I'll tell you, and you've got to have froth on top. Oh, okay. All right, I'll, 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 I'll try and make one myself when, <laughs> when I get home. Um, uh, from just on, on other topics, um, we're going to get onto a, a, a fairly large topic in a few moments' time, but just uh, outside of cricket, your, your football team's had a bit of a renaissance. You've just done the local neighbours. Uh, and also, the team... I, I say the, the team that... 
you were involved with at one point looks like it's heading back to the big time. Yeah, I'm, I'm having a good couple of weeks with Man United and uplifted when the new lads come along. It's, it, I mean, obviously it looks as if he can play, but it's, it's given them some energy, some impetus to be attacking more and there's a lot more verve in them where we seem to be pedestrian passing the ball. I mean, everybody tried, we know that. But pace is everything, speed of thought, everything quicker in the Premier League. And now we seem to be going forward and not so frightened of the opposition. So, yeah, it's been, not there'll be some ups and downs, it won't be a straight road, but they've had a good few weeks of that. And uh, Leeds have done well. Yeah. You know, I used to play for Leeds as a young kid, 17, 18 years old. What position were you? Uh, Left half, they now call them midfielders, but I was left half. I couldn't get central midfield. That were Billy Bremner. <laughs> that's, <laughs> yeah, would, that's a difficult one to dislodge. <laughs> yeah, he was a bit special. I played with him in a Northern Intermediate Cup match at Doncaster under some very ordinary lights in those days. My God, that would be about 1958. We played in the evening. I mean, you could hardly see the ball at the other end of the field. <laughs> Not like floodlights today. No, he was a special player. But it's nice to see them because, you know, they had a... Wonderful period under Don Revy when they were, oh, they played some football that was eye-catching and successful. Wonderful soccer. I mean, very successful under him. Two league championships, an FA Cup, a league cup, two Intercities First Cups, wasn't it? Yeah. As well. I mean, and they played some good stuff, really good stuff. Top so, side as well. Yeah, some would say a bit of a dirty side <laughs> well, as well. Well, that's what I was kind where, of inferring. <laughs> yeah, that's where my friend got into trouble, Mr. Clough, when he went there. What you know, he, he went, he, he thought they were so talented, so talented, that they didn't need the kind of tricks and gamesmanship and people like he thought Peter Lorimer was talented. I see Peter again at the races at York. But he thought he died for penalties. And then Johnny Giles, I mean, oh, that was an almost genius move, taking him from Man United, what, right winger. He's so talented, putting him midfield general was a masterstroke. I mean, he just ran the whole show like Paul Scholes did for Man United. Mm. And then you had Billy, who was the heart and soul, the aggression and Toughness, like we had Roy Keane, who would fight anybody, Roy, wouldn't he? Oh, <laughs> fight <Christ>. himself? <laughs> oh, fight anybody, shadow. He needed to fight somebody like that, Vieira. Yeah, pick on somebody your own size. But when, when I'll be uh, easy to find. He says, I'm, 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 I'm interested in this. I, I haven't seen the film. Do you know what? And I will. I will. I will watch it. It'll be on one of the, uh, the, the the film channels. But the the film that came out about Brian Clough's time at. Leeds United, yeah. the damned United. I, I don't know if you have seen that or not. I can't watch it because some people did watch it. And some writers who watched it and said it shows Brian drinking and too much alcohol. And that wasn't true. Right at the end of his career at Nottingham Forest. Yes, I think that is true. But when I, I know for a fact because I, I went to his house for dinner when I went to his matches at, at Derby and at Nottingham Forest. After we'd finished as a guest, I would go home, follow him in my car and we'd have dinner at his house and mm. he would cook dinner for me on a Saturday night while Barbara and him and I, we chatted, but he would cook the dinner. And I know he wasn't an alcoholic when he went to Leeds because on the first day he arrived at Leeds, I was practising at Headingley. And after I'd practiced, I thought I'd go down to see him and wish him well. 
and I was far too naive because when I got there, it was a scrum, wasn't it? Newspaper men, mm -hmm. television cameras, radio, everybody around. And I mean, it was a scrum trying to go up to the kiosk and, kiosk and say to the girl, look, oh, I'm sorry, love, I, I really came to see Mr. Clough, he's a friend of mine, but I can see it's too difficult. She said, well, look, I've got to take these messages in to see him. I'll give him your name. And she came back and she said, oh, Mr. Clough can't see you, can't see you, this and that. Mr. Boycott, will you wait? He'll come and get you. And so he, I waited a bit and I actually, he took me into his office, which was Don Revy's office, obviously. Just yeah. First day he arrived. And I sat there having a cup of tea with him and different things. So I knew him that well that he wasn't an alcoholic then. I accept in the last couple of years it got to him at Nottingham Forest. Um, and he, it was sad because he was new, wasn't he, to football. He'd had his first division championship at Derby. Derby, yeah. And that was the only trophy he had up to then. And the Leeds had had, as I said, all these trophies, FA Cup, League Cup, two first Cups, two league championships, and numerous where they just failed at the final or in the FA Cup, they got there. So they had a lot of success. And they probably thought he was just a one-trophy upstart and a loudmouth guy who just won once at Derby, where he was going to be a genius at man-managing. And, I mean, what did Paul Maidley say to him? Later on, he told me, he was only there 44 days, Paul Maidley said, what can you do for us that we haven't done already? <laughs> he said, I could do the same thing and do it better. <laughs> you know, that's the sort of confidence yeah. he had in himself. It's like when he went on TV and took nothing away from Don Revy, I told you, created fantastic football, beautiful, beautiful to watch and highly successful. And on television, after he got the sack with Don Revy, what did Don say? Don said, what could you do better than us, Brian? We won the league and only lost two matches. And Brian said, I could win the league and not lose any matches. That's what I tried to do. And that was the only, that was the only thing he could say, wasn't it? It was the only Absolutely. thing, the only ambition left. But that was the man. And he went into a hostile environment and it's just, it's just unfortunate. But I think they missed a trick because the management, more than anything, if they, they knew he had been critical of Leeds, and therefore if they thought that their team after Dawn was beginning to get a little old, wanted freshen up, wanted, you know, somebody to grab it by the scruff of the neck. And they were brave enough to go and pick a man who had been critical at times of some of their football or players. Then having made that decision, they should have stood by him and got rid of some of the players, shouldn't they? Yeah. Or don't bring in a man like that, that you know is coming into a hostile environment. So I don't blame the players totally. Brian wanted to go because he wanted a shot at the European Cup and Leeds were in it. And they were the top team. <laughs> and he always felt, if you read his book, when he was at Derby and they won the championship and they went into the European Cup, they were cheated in the semi-final against Juventus. And he was found that the referee in Juventus, my memory's right, gave a penalty in the last few minutes against Derby and he's found to have been bribed a couple of years later. And so he wanted a shot. He was ambitious. He had drive. He had energy. He was young, confident, 
that's how it was. And uh, so I, I mean, the great thing is great feelings he, for Leeds. But yeah. I, I do you know what the saddest thing for me about Leeds because I once played for them. I also watch how they're doing. And please, I hope they get up because they've got a fantastic fan base. You know, yeah, fantastic. I mean, they'll have forty or thousand every time they play. They'll take thousands away with them. I'm always puzzled. Some I I use taxis at home and local lads with taxis who take me places. And I say, um, I said, why are you so anti Man United? And they can't answer, but they are, so many of them. And so anti, so I played for Leeds, I'm fond of. I support Man United. And the Leeds fans, loads of them, hate Man United. I, I was I was going to ask you about that, but now that I know you've not got an answer, I don't, I, I don't know where this stems from. Maybe someone can tell us where actually the sort of root of the of the uh, rivalry between Leeds. Well, and we Manchester bought some United. of their players, but we paid them a lot of money for them. Well, yes, I don't think <laughs> I don't think you get upset for for that kind of reason, do you? Uh, well, it's, why? It's interesting. You, you work it out for well, the podcast because I can I ask I these taxi drivers. I ask people around, and they cannot tell you why. They just hate Man United. Ah, maybe, maybe the Manchester side of the M62 got built first. Hey, listen, <laughs> if they've got promoted and we have to play Leeds home and away, which we will, it'll be like World War Three. <laughs> uh, 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 which side of the fence will you be sitting on? Mm, Man United. Uh, okay, okay. Um, look, let's just finish off, Jeffrey, because there is obviously one story uh, across uh, the world that is taking precedence over absolutely everything. It has, and we're going to look at it from a sporting connotation, um, and that is, of course, coronavirus. It is worrying uh, mm. globally. Um, yeah. Let me just give you uh, a couple of uh, a couple of things that I've got written down here. Now, uh, and this has happened relatively recently. Now, we know uh, about the uh, the affection of the uh, the, the Six Nations. Uh, Italian football has has sort of closed down. I've just read, actually, today, Danish football has closed until the, the 29th, which therefore puts a uh, friendly against England, uh, actually, uh, on the 29th in doubt. Uh, Manchester United's game in Austria is going to be played behind uh, closed doors. There's a lot of sporting events are going to be. And it was actually announced that the IPL will start behind closed doors. Um, Lanx, Surrey, Worcestershire, they've all cancelled their pre-season tours. They were due to go out to uh, the United Arab Emirates. Um, it's also been seen that Juventus, one of the Juventus players, and, and, and Italy has obviously been hit hugely hard by this, but they have precautions in place and they're quarantining uh, regulations, etc. But it's actually been shown that one Juventus player has uh, been positively tested for coronavirus. Um, this is, of course, a worry globally and also for, for, for sport in general. I mentioned that the, the cricket season starts on the 12th of April and this is, you know, something has to be done. Well, it's simple for me. I'm a sportsman all my life. Uh, I still work in it and I love it. I think it's part of society. It gives us lots of enjoyment and pleasure. But nothing is more important than people's lives. Mm-hmm. And if it's a toss-up by playing a cricket match, a soccer match, scrap it. You've got to safeguard life. And quite honestly, the World Health Organization is saying that we've got a pandemic. That says to me, we've got an emergency. Yes. And I agree with Pep Guardiola. I saw his comments and maybe other people as well. So I can always say, never met the man. He says, we don't play football to play behind closed doors part of playing football is the public there, the people. 
Chris Wilder no. said the same thing today, Sheffield United manager. Well, it is. I mean, if you're going to play football, cricket, whatever it is behind closed doors and have television, then you're only playing for the money, aren't you? Correct. That's all you're doing. Correct. You're playing purely so television will pay you lots of money, lots of lolly. Now, that's rubbish. I'd say something worse if it wasn't a broadcasting thing. I mean, it's absolutely disgraceful. That You just cancel it. You have to protect people's lives. I mean, it's the first time I thought about it was just a few days ago, and I thought, this is crazy. All the countries now are in lockdown, like Italy. Two, three weeks ago, they were pussyfooting around until it's caught them out. We seem to be pushing footing around and waiting till it happens. We should try to, we should be trying to prevent it. And every time, if we could stop sporting events or any pe number of people coming together that saves lives, then we should do it now. We should do it, and until the virus has gone past, what have you? Because I don't want to get anywhere near it, and it will hit children. Elderly people, Elderly, yeah. anybody who've got any illnesses at all, they're in danger, aren't they? Hundred percent. And I have to say, and I'm not just saying I agree with you a hundred percent on this. It is it is bigger than any games. It is bigger than um, uh, you know, like you say, it's people's lives that are. Look, I've got an operation in two weeks, right, on my knee. I'm having a full knee replacement. I've been oh, waiting for this. Need? Yeah, but I've been waiting for this for five or six years. I'm not stupid enough to know that the bigger picture, if it's cancelled, then I'll get it done another time. Get this sorted um, and, and contained, and then we can, you know, pause everything for now. We can always move on later. That's. You can't. Look, even if you have to close down the stock exchange or companies have to say, right, everybody go home, stay at home as much as you can, stay away from, you know, big gatherings and everything. If that has to happen for a few weeks and it saves people's so lives, that's more important than profit, making money or whatever. Because once you're alive, you can move on with your life afterwards. And I think that is a perfect point to end things. Jeffrey, thank you so much as ever. I really enjoyed it this week. Thank you. He's been Jeffrey Boycott. I've been Charles Dagnall. Thank you so much for listening and downloading. This podcast was brought to you by Gospel. We look forward to your company next time. Mm -hmm.